I very much love grace. I love because I blow it a lot. I love just getting to run back to God and asking forgiveness, knowing that if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive it. I love to preach grace. I love all this good new stuff. I'm a little more challenged, though, at the topic we look at today, that I, just, I don't just have a Savior whose grace covers me. I also have a king to whom I owe allegiance and obedience. And he's a great king. And he's an amazing king. And the laws of his kingdom are made for my flourishing and made for my life. And it's insane to follow myself or anything else. And yet, I still much rather run and ask forgiveness than bow in service, bow in obedience. We're going to look at the king today. We're going to look at his lordship. We're going to look at his right to rule. Uh, in Psalm chapter 2. So, so turn with me to Psalm 2 as we, as we look at that. Last week we introduced the Psalms. Uh, and we talked about Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 being uh, a sort of introduction to the whole of the Psalms. And then Psalm 146 through 150 wrapping up the Psalms. And so within that there's uh, the starting word of the Psalms is blessed, happy is, fully satisfied is, under the active favor of God is. And then the end of Psalm chapter 2 is blessed, is, fully satisfied, is, under the act of goodness of God, is. And then two key themes that we will find repeated over and over again throughout the Psalms uh, are these two keys to the life that is fully satisfied in God. The life that is fully under the act of favor of God, somewhat, mostly independent of our circumstances. Fully satisfied is the one who places their life under the Torah of God. The instructions of God, the law of God. God's laws designed to maximize the flourishing of mankind, given as an act of his grace to mankind on how you were designed to live, how your flourishing is maximized if you live this way. And if you will put your life under that law, not just put your life under it, someone, if you will delight in it. If it will hold value and worth and and delight and rejoicing to you, if this book will fill your heart with delight. You'll have a life that is largely under the active goodness of God, fully satisfied, and largely independent of your circumstances. And then the closing of this psalm, blessed is the one who takes refuge. And so blessed is the one who chooses to put themselves in the divine son, in underneath the divine king, underneath the Messiah. Those who would run to him for help and run to him for refuge and run to him for security will find they're fully satisfied in God will find that they're under the active goodness of God. And these two themes of Messiah and Torah will run their ways throughout all of these, or, or so many of these, of these psalms. And so, again, last week, the blessed life, the life that is fully satisfied is delighting in the law. When that law becomes a delight and a meditation and the day in and day out murmuring of your heart, when that becomes true, then you'll have a life of impact and it has the staying power to face the hardships and the drought and the difficulties of life. And then it will ultimately be a life that is underneath the gaze of God. And his care will be over that life. And his security will be over that life all the way into eternity and through eternity. But a life that is in opposition to that. A life that's walked in the world's ways and in the world's counsel. And identified with the world is a life that is like this crispy stuff on the edge of grain. That a good wind blows across and blows it away. Well, As we move to Psalm chapter 2 today, it's a royal psalm in its classification. Uh, It's actually what's called a coronation psalm. And so it would be one of the psalms that would be part of the formal ceremony when um, kings would receive their crown, which would be their official ceremony of becoming king and receiving the title of king and receiving the privileges and responsibilities and the, and the, the land of the empire. They would formally have a service where the crown would be placed on their head and these formal documents would be, would, would be present that, that, crowned him king that enthroned him as king and this is one of those it's a it's a coronation psalm it's a it's a psalm of crowning of a new king and what you'll find with these psalms that are messianic in nature like they point to messiah they point to jesus is you'll find there's these layers and so there is a human king who went through a human ceremony 
who received the crown, and he was from the line of David. He had to have the blood of David in him to be the rightful ruler over God's people. And he would have a formal ceremony either at the end of his father's life, and sometimes he would co-reign with his father for a period of time based on health or whatever, or sometimes it would be at the passing of his father, and he would have this formal ceremony where officially the crown is given to him, officially the title of the nation is given to him, officially the privileges and responsibilities of the nation were given to him. It's historic and it's human, but there's also this other layer that is messianic and is divine. It's not just pointing to some physical son of David. It's pointing to the ultimate son of David. And so we have, because this is one of the most frequent quoted psalms in the New Testament, we have very good license to go read Jesus into Psalm chapter 2 because that's what the uh, inspired authors of the New Testament did throughout Acts and Revelation and then several other places in between. And so we are looking at the ultimate plan of God, the ultimate king of God as we read Psalm chapter 2. And we're looking at the current or at the human one. So let's look at it. Why do the nations rage? And why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who is enthroned or sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore... O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. O Father, I pray that this psalm might be a great warning to us to run again to refuge in Jesus Lord, to not allow ourselves to be pulled away, to not allow ourselves to drift, to not allow ourselves to walk away, but, but God, to have the wisdom to run back into Jesus. And for those who are in this room, Father, who don't know Jesus, who are not saved and in the saving refuge of Jesus, God, I pray you would open up their eyes. Oh, I pray that you would awaken their hearts. I pray that you would show them this great and this glorious King. Oh, and I pray they would run. I pray they would turn. I pray they would put their faith in him alone to save. And so, God, I pray help us. Help us to love the kingship of our king. Help us to love his good and gracious rule over our lives. Help us to rejoice at his laws that are life, that delight the eyes and rejoice the heart. God, help us to delight in your Torah, to delight in the rule of our king. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I do want to read back the front just, just for a second. The point of this psalm, it culminates with blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And so that gives us the, re, the, the interpretive read. As we read through 1 through 11, we're reading through these like terrific images. We're reading through this cosmic battle. We're reading through a God who is going to judge and wrath and burn up his enemies. But why did he write it that way? So that you would come to the same conclusion as the psalmist at the end of the psalm. That does not have to be you. And so make sure as we're reading this imagery, as terrifying as it is, or we're reading this imagery as maybe it seems harsh to you, you're reading it as a warning light to say, run to Jesus who is wide open for refuge. And the nations are reading it or having it told to them is that this God who will destroy you is also the God who will save you. And as on this side of the cross, we know that he will save you at the cost of his own son. Right? That's good news. Okay, so the sovereign Messiah will be enthroned. The sovereign Messiah will be enthroned. Let's look at the first one. Rebellious people will always rage against God's rule and authority. Rebellious people will always rage against God's rule and authority. 
And so I was just kind of scanning through just some of the bigger ticket examples of this. And, you know, yet another Christian actress has said, you know, it just feels too impossible to follow God. Which is a real passive way of saying it's too much and I don't want to be under the rule of God and the rules of God. In Portland, they are burning Bibles. We will not have God rule us and we will not have this book rule over us. Popular Christian speakers who are charming and and messy and witty and you can identify with them so well have chosen to erase certain rules of God's design and gender and sexuality. We will not have God rule us. We will not have him tell us what to do. And man, I wish it would stay out there in Hollywood. I wish it would stay in the popular Christian blogs. But it's also the default posture of my heart and yours apart from Jesus. I will make the rules. I will not submit to anyone. I will chart my course. I will master my destiny. I will be my own God. And that is the human heart apart from God. We do not want to be ruled. We do not want to submit. We do not want anyone over us. And we won't have it. And if I let you be over me, then it will only be as long as I agree with it or as long as I don't have the ability to fight back against it. And that is the posture of the human heart. That's the posture of individuals. That's the posture of cultures and subcultures. That's the posture of nations. That's the posture of the world. But that is not the posture of the Christian. The Christians realize our God is good, our God is gracious, his rule is a kindly rule, and I gladly submit myself under him. I gladly let him rule over me. And so which posture do you see dominating your own heart? Yeah, God, I'm all about it, but I'm going to set the rules. Oh, God, you are so wonderful and so gracious. I long for your commandments. I delight in your law. I want you to enlarge my heart because I want a greater obedience out of my life. Which posture would you say defines you? Now, let's look at it. As we jump in, again, there's the historic Davidic king from the line of David, uh, getting, and then there's Messiah. And really, that's split into two because the New Testament's going to talk about his death and resurrection quoting the psalm, but the New Testament's also going to talk about his return to finish the work and to usher in the new and final age, quoting this psalm. So as we look at it, each section has a new speaker, right? And so there's this very intentional setup. It's going to define the group, and then it's going to quote what that person, what that group is saying. And so the first three, and they're about equal sections. So the first three verses, we have the nations speaking. They've taken this council, they've called a war council, and they have decided, and then in verse 3, you find them speaking. And then you are introduced to Yahweh. You're introduced to God, and God is going to speak. And then from there, it's going to transition to Messiah, the newly appointed king, the one who is receiving the crown, and he is going to have this scroll written by God, and he is going to speak that scroll. He's going to read the words that God has written down for him to read. And then the last voice will be the voice of the psalmist saying, this is what this is about. This is why you're hearing this. This is what you should do to respond to the message. And so the psalmist speaks to give perspective and to give application to the voices that have come before. So let's look at this first voice. And so it's the nations gathering together. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? And there's all these connections between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Like the word plot there is the word for meditation in in chapter 1. And so delight and meditate on the word. Or we're going to meditate, we're going to plot together in vain to overthrow God. You've got blessed and you've got blessed, which we've talked about. Um, You've got counsel and counsel, like the counsel of the wicked. And here we're going to also have the counsel of the nations against God. You're going to have the way of the wicked there. And that way is going to be perishing at the... Uh, uh, in verses 10 and 11, that way is going to be cut short as God comes and his anger kindles if you would not follow him. And so there are these very intentional par- uh, uh, links between the, the two psalms. But as you jump into here, you look, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves together. 
And so what he's saying is like there is this allegiance that is owed from the whole earth towards God. He is not just Jewish God. He is not just a tribal God. He is owed the allegiance of the nations. He is the creator of the nations. And so there's this universal requirement that mankind submit to God's rule. And as the unfolding plan of God happens, God has chosen to identify himself with a nation, to choose for himself a nation, and to place over that nation a king. And that king is then the human representation that is owed allegiance. That, one, that human king is the one that the nations are to come to and to pay tribute to and to submit themselves to, which is really just a faint echo of the future king that would come, that is Jesus, where all the nations would owe him allegiance and all the nations would owe him obedience and all the nations would come to him for refuge. That's the way God set it up. And now we have, as this king is taking his throne, a pot among the subject nations. And it's the picture of they have gotten the representative of the nations in a room to have a war council. And they've decided to get into a war room and figure out, how do we wage war against God? How do we throw God out of our culture? How do we throw him off of the top of us? How do we get free of him? Why do they rage and then why do they murmur? in an absolutely vain attempt to have God not rule over him. And yes, as human kings came about, human kings were more godly and less godly. And you found generally that the course of the nation would flow in the spiritual condition of the king. And so as you had godly kings, the nation's spirituality would grow and they would become more godly. And as you had ungodly kings, the nations would run after this ungodliness and their, and their ungodliness would grow. And so you would have that interplay that, that you would see among human kings, but you don't see it in God's final king. And so as you've got this war counseling, like, we won't have God rule us. We're going to figure out a way to take him out. We're going to figure out a way to overthrow him. They speak. And what do they speak? Let us burst their bonds apart and let us cast away their cords from us. What view of the rule of God does that give you? What view of God's law and God's rules does it give you when you say, let's burst his bonds, or it could be translated yoke. Let's break his yoke from us, and let's take his cords from us. It is the view that God's rule in our lives is enslaving. God's rule in our life puts us in chains. It takes away our freedom. It is harsh, and it is oppressive, and it is restrictive, and we are slaves. And you think that's about captures the posture of how people apart from Jesus see the rule of God. Why would you restrict yourself in that way? Why would you cut away the fun? Why would you dare conform yourself to that? That's insane. That's so restrictive. And their great plan is we're going to take the chains of God off of our lives. And you know what's funny about that? In human nature... Freedom means I'm free from God to do whatever I want, right? So whatever I define what I want as, that is human nature and that's freedom. And that's how you view freedom. Hopefully not. But apart from Jesus, that's how we view freedom, isn't it? I get to do what I want. It can be my way right away. Here's the funny thing about that. That is the precise definition of God's present day judgment in your life. When God lets you do you, it is the most tragic judgment that God places on people's lives right now today. Read Romans chapter 1. We won't have you, God. We'll worship a bird statue before we'll worship you, God. We'll worship the green bills in our pockets before we'll worship you, God. You won't be our king. And God says, that's fine. You do you. And it's tragic. And if you read the progression of Romans chapter 1, he gives them over. He gives them over to the desires of their flesh. You go do you, and it's especially, primarily like a sexual word, but not only. Go have a sexual revolution. Leave the stream of destruction in your wake. And as it progresses, as you read through Romans chapter 1, he gave them over to burn with desires for each other, men men and women with women, to do what is unnatural. That's Romans, that's God's word. And he gives them over to a homosexual revolution. 
And then as he continues, as they continue to say, we will not have you, God, we will not have you rule us, and they exchange the glory of God for the, for the glory of creation, he says he gives them over to a debased mind. Their minds stop working. They no longer function the way they're supposed to function. I get to do what I want, that's freedom. And God says, no, that's judgment. The worst thing a good and gracious God can do is let you do you. The worst thing he could do in your life is to leave you alone. And yet we have nations plotting to take the chains of God off of their life so that he will leave them alone. And it's tragic. And it's what they long for. And it's what they want. Here's the deal. We're under the illusion that we don't have to serve anyone. Let me read for you two verses from the New Testament. You're going to have a ruler. Somebody will be your master. What kind of master do you want? Because here's the the version of the world's ruler in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of, or following the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. There is a little g-god of this present age. There is the prince of the power of the air. There is a spirit operating in the sons of disobedience. Uh, Jesus talks to to the the religious leaders who are uh, rejecting him and says, you're of your father the devil. You are identified under. In Romans chapter 6, it says you you, you were enslaved to sin. And think of how utterly tragic it is for sin to be your slave master. Think how utterly tragic it is when Satan, the prince of the power of the air, is your ruler, is your identification, your identifying father. Think of how tragic that is. But it sure is fun. Because sin does have a passing pleasure. Sin is fun. Kind of like the worm on a hook is a great free meal. And that's exactly how it it gets pictured for us. There is this little g-god of the present age, and he hates God with everything he is. And if he could get the right gun in his hands to go slaughter God, he would. But he has no chance whatsoever, so what does he do? He takes the image of God which is you and which is me, and he crumples them and he destroys them and he creates hatred among us and suspicion among us and he he does as much as he can to ravage our relationships and ravage our souls and ravage our world as much as he possibly can until ultimately he gets to just kill you. And that's the rule that we're under, but man, it's fun. Man, there's so much pleasure when I get to do it my way. There's another kind of king. There's someone else we can serve. And if you're tired of that kind of life, crushing you, crushing your relationships, crushing your soul, crushing the world around you, lighting it on fire, literally, if you're tired of it, here's what Jesus says. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And God wants us to know very clearly when we say, you won't chain me up, what we're saying. And it won't be life that you find when those chains come off. It'll be misery and destruction and chaos and ultimately eternal destruction. And you look over the landscape of the world and it is a scorched earth world. Because it's a world that has tried to break the bonds of God off of them. The gracious rule of a gracious king off of them. Acts chapter 4 quotes this very passage when it talks about uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So the apostles had just been abused for following Jesus. And they gather back together and have a prayer meeting. And this is what they say. And then when they heard it, the report, they lifted up their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage? 
and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then look at what they're interpreting that as. For truly in this city they gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, Lord God, look upon their threats and grant your servants boldness. The Gentiles have raged and slaughtered Jesus according to the very predestined plan of God to accomplish his purposes. And now they have come and raged against the people proclaiming Jesus. And what do they ask for? God, just give us boldness to go talk about Jesus again. Just give us boldness to go talk about Jesus again. Let's move forward. God is unfazed by human opinion or opposition of himself. God is unfazed by human opinion or opposition to himself. You, just try to frame a little bit of God in your mind and how big and powerful he is. Right? So for all eternity, God sits within the Trinity in this joyful, full fellowship, missing nothing whatsoever, but decides to create the world. And he simply looks at, at, out over nothing and he says, just be. And it is. And then when Isaiah interprets for us how God views the massive power of kingdoms of the earth, he says it's like so many grasshoppers before him. That's how, that's how Isaiah describes what it is these people are, are against God. It is the God who formed every single one of us in the womb, who gives life and breath and everything to all people, who sets the boundaries of nations, who rises up kings and takes kings down. And then you take a poll of Americans and less and less of them believe in God, that he exists, or believe in him in a saving way. We have great philosophers who have declared him dead for centuries, or a century at least. We have wonderful academics and scientists and philosophers who have told us how foolish it is to think that there is a God and to think that he is alive and to think that he's real, how foolish it is and how he does not exist. Do you think God's up in heaven like, oh no, how can I get my poll up? It's an election year. How can I get people to like me again? No. Is he wringing his hands thinking, how do I get him back to the table? How do I get him to like me again? How can I just go show him, no, I'm not really dead, guys. I'm still here. And you think about the insanity of these two different views, right? There's no God, and God's just up there like, okay, you do you. You do you. And that's the picture we're going to get painted for us in these next few verses. God is completely unfazed by his poll numbers, completely unfazed by the brilliant people of the earth that have declared he doesn't exist. I think the problem is that we're not unfazed by it because we want to be on the winning side. We want to be on the popular side. We want to be respectable, and we want to be seen as, you know, as, with a reputation, and that's fine to a degree, right, because we want to have a good name before people. But more than being accepted out there, do we want to be aligned with God? Because look at this. Look at his response. The nations are like, let's throw his shackles off of us. We're not going to have him rule us. And how does God respond? I love this image. The one who sits, literally the one who is enthroned in the heavens, laughs. What a cute little grasshopper plan you guys have put together. Wow, that's pretty neat, guys, what you guys did there with that whole war council thing. He laughs and he mocks them. Now, it doesn't mean he is laughing and mocking the eternal destruction that is coming upon them. He means that the plan that they have hatched is so small and so pitiful and so vain and so futile that it is a laughing stock to the Trinity as they look at it and as they hear man trying to carry it out. And he gets to just mock and laugh like, oh, that's so neat. You got your neat little plan with your neat little council and your neat little weapons, and that's just going to be really cute. It's like it's like playing army men. Like those army men have as much chance as humanity does at, at, at beating God. He laughs. He holds him the derision, and now it's his turn to speak. 
And when God speaks, it is utterly terrifying. The God who speaks and the mountains that strike all in your heart is the God when he speaks fury at you is a God that will be utterly terrifying to you. And he says he will speak to them in his wrath and he will terrify them in his fury. And what will he say? I'm going to go ahead and put my king on my throne anyways. In the midst of hostile nations that desire to conquer my human people, my chosen people, I laugh because my power can secure them and I will not have the nations defeat them, but over my Messiah, over my true son, my begotten son, I laugh if you think that I will not put my son in charge to rule over the nations. I mock you. And I will terrify you with the opening of my voice. So we're not going to have you ruling, God says. I'm going to just go ahead and put my king in place anyways. And my king will rule. Now this echoes us back to 2 Samuel 7. You can mark it in your notes. And that's what we have. is called the Davidic Covenant. This is a covenant where God makes promises to David. And I won't go into all of it, but just a few of them that are pertinent to the psalm. The legitimate right to rule for somebody over God's people, must come from the bloodline of David. So that's the, the first part of it. The kings will now come from David. The second part is its adoption, which you're going to see in a verse or two. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me, and I will discipline him with the rods of men, but I will not take his, my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul before you. So I'm promising that you will always be uh, the rulers, and I'm promising you that I'm going to adopt you, and I'm never going to separate from you again. And then the universal interpretation of this passage, including through the prophets of the Old Testament, is there is not just a human line of David coming. There is an ultimate David coming called the Messiah. There is going to be a forever ruler who will take up the throne of David, and he will establish a kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace. And so there are human kings that ultimately point to this divine king that is coming. And so as for me, I will set my king from the line of David, in Jerusalem or on Mount Zion, on my holy hill. And it ripples back through all of that. And so you have the historic coronation of a king, and you have the ultimate coronation of the divine king. And you think about how, the, how Satan tried to stop that, right? You think about how Satan tried to stop it. The wise men came into to Herod, and Herod was like, I'm, you just tell me, and I'm going to go worship this king, but he intends to kill him. And when the wise men leave and don't tell Herod about it because they're warned in a dream, do you know what Herod does? Satan does. He slaughters every baby two years old and under in the whole town where Jesus was known to be. Because Satan would have this king destroyed. And then, ultimately, Satan's like, hey, there's a cross. Let's get him there. And the very instrument that Satan thought was his victory was his ultimate undoing. And such is the wisdom of God. Such is the power of God. I will go ahead and put my king in place. He will go ahead and rule. Thank you very much. I laugh that you think you could stop my plan of redemption and my plan of instituting a global kingdom. I think what you see in here, God is completely unfazed by the way people think about him. He's completely unfazed by who might want to overthrow him. And so I just want to encourage you. Align your lives with God. Align your lives underneath His Lordship. I know there's a million voices out there that say there's a better way. I know there's a million voices out there that, that you think if you just went a different direction that, that, that it could be fun and it could be more fulfilling and it could be a better life for you. And I want to plead with you, don't believe it. Because God, in the face of this massive opposition, simply laughs and gives us Jesus in its place. Sets him up to rule and to reign in its place. And so there's this massive warfare between the world and between God. And I just plead with you, don't walk the fence between the two. Don't let yourself be so consumed with what people around you think that you would be silent about the God who saved you. Third step, the Messiah King will have a global dominion with stunning authority and power. The Messiah King will have a global dominion with stunning authority and power. 
So I, I looked this up. I thought it would be, you know, Rome or one of the Chinese empires. The biggest empire to ever be on earth was the British Empire. 26-ish percent of the world's land and, and people were under British rule. Um, and so huge parts of India, North America, um, basically the major trade routes and, and resources would come through this empire. Now, building empires is really brutal business. I mean, it is bloody, it is harsh, it is oppressive, because generally people don't like being under the rule of some random person thousands of miles away. And so you think how stunning this is. Like, there's not airplanes. There weren't cars for the better part of their empire, and yet they ran 26% of the world. And then, you know, populations grow, World War I starts, and now all of a sudden they don't have the power for this global reach, and they don't have the resources for this global reach. And so now England's, there are buddies now, of them. They have a land that's a little island about this big. That's the biggest empire the world has ever put together, the richest empire the world has ever put together, and now there are buddies on an island. Which gives you just a slight picture of Messiah is going to come, and he's not going to just have a global empire. He's going to have a universal empire that spans for eternity. And it won't be marked by its harshness to subjugate people. It will be marked by its justice that allows everyone to flourish. It will be marked by its righteousness as, as holiness and godliness and righteousness is what flourishes among people. A rightness in relationship to God. A rightness in relationship to each other. And that's what will mark this kingdom. And we're split between these two rules, these two powers, these two authorities. Which one will get our allegiance? When you think about this king and this kingdom, why would you uh, pledge allegiance to anything else? Why would you let your affections attach to anything else? And so let's look at it. It's got this global power and authority. And so the nations, let's burst his yoke off of us. Whereas Jesus is like, I've got this easy yoke and this burden that will give you rest for your souls. And then God laughs and he says, I'm going to put my king in place anyways. And now the king comes and he has been crowned and he's given a document. In this case, the document is from Yahweh, from God, for him to read as his new title and his new privileges and his new responsibilities. And with that, he speaks. And so he reads and he says, today I have begotten you. Today you are my son. Do you see that? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What did he promise David? I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. There was an adoption ceremony that was part of the crowning of the king of Israel. And there is a true pointing to the true son of God. You are my son. And it's these very words that God affirms over Jesus' life at all of these key points. At Jesus' baptism, the voice of God the Father speaks out of the heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. At the transfiguration where Jesus, for the only time in his human existence, his full glory gets put on display for just a very few disciples. The voice of God thunders from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then we also have the same thing happen in Acts chapter 13, dealing with the resurrection of Jesus. The apostles are declaring Jesus and they say, we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. That he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also there was written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so you're reading a message that ripples all the way to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're my son. All the way to the birth and the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. You're my son. All the way through the display of the glory of Jesus. You're my son. And all the way through the resurrection. My son. All tied back to this psalm in Psalm chapter 2. And so let's look at it. Today, or you are my son. Today I have begotten you, the very unique son of God, which is, which is Jesus. And he says, as for me, and that, that makes this verse so much bigger, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so he if you look at it in human context, he goes to the king and he says, Look, king, I love and I have chosen the nation of Israel. 
If you had a big enough heart for me and a big enough dream in your heart for the nations to come to me, you could dream and you could ask, give me the nations, God, because this little land of Israel isn't enough. And God would say, I would be glad to give you the nations. Because the point of God choosing the nation of Israel was never that he could have his own little pet people and that little pet people could be identified with him and have holiness and righteousness in him and be related to him and then forget the rest of the world. That was never the plan of God. The plan of God was always, let me put a nation on the earth to show my glory and my power in so that they might declare to the nations, come to our God. Our God is not just a Jewish God. He's a global God. Our king is not just a, a, a tribal land king. He's a global king. And, the, and the, uh, the, the Jews were always meant to be a light to the nations for the nations to come to God. Which gives you, when you move from the human uh, Physical Israel to the Messiah, this brand new, bigger meaning. I didn't kill my son for a little group of people on the edge of the Middle East. I didn't let my son die on a cross according to the, pre, uh, to the, to the foreknowledge and plan of my eternal counsel. I didn't do that so he could just have this little inheritance among Israel. He says that in Isaiah. It's too small a thing that you should just raise up the tribes of Israel. Ask of me. And I'll make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And that is the plan that has walked out in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the plan that has walked out when God sends his spirit to the world and says, uh, I will make you my witnesses from Jerusalem to to Judea to the ends of the earth. And if you were to do a study throughout the Old Testament about the ends of the earth, you would find from start to finish this was always the plan. That, Jesus, or that the Messiah would be a light to the nations. That his salvation would reach the ends of the earth. And so that's why at the end of Jesus' life, in every single instance, we get a commission. Because Jesus' sacrifice was too beautiful to be confined to those who agree with us politically. Jesus' salvation was too beautiful to be confined to those who look like us and are of the same ethnicity as us. Jesus' salvation was too beautiful and too amazing to be confined to those who are part of our same national citizenship or part of our city or part of our region. It was too beautiful to be confined to a little bitty people somewhere. That it was always big enough, and it was always beautiful enough, and it was always glorious enough, and it was always worthy enough of the ends of the earth. Wherever the ends of the earth are, and whatever the ends of the earth look like, and whatever the ends of the earth happen to be doing. So when you show up on the scene, whether it be a city on fire, or a, the most closed nation on earth, and you show up on the scene, you are walking into Psalm 1, 2, 1, 2, and 3. You're walking into people that said, we will not have God rule. We will not have his shackles on us. And we will rage against him to declare to him, them, there is a king who would welcome you into his possession, welcome you into his inheritance, welcome you into his salvation. Are we willing to be the people that walk across the lines to declare that message, to live that message and show that message and reconcile with that message? And so the Messiah then says, As he reads these words, he says, the ends of the earth will be my possession. And then he says, you will rule them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The rod of iron is quoted four times in the book of Revelation. I'm going to read one of them in a minute. But this psalm, this image is quoted four times in the book of Revelation. We might miss something in this imagery because we might think this rod of iron, it's all judgment, it's all breaking down things. We might miss that the rod was meant to discipline his own sheep so that they would stay safe and they would stay close. And then the rod was also used for defense against wolves, against predators, and against marauders. And so the shepherd imagery of a rod is the shepherd that says, I will do what it takes to keep you close to me and safe by me, as well as I'll do whatever it takes to defend you against the predators. And so when this king offers a rod of iron, yes, the, the imagery has some harshness to it, but it also has, if I gladly will be one of his, he will keep me close and he will keep me safe. He will defend me. And then you think about the image, and this is the image of power, right? You ever had, like maybe not all of you would do this, a little clay pot for flowers? Like 
Yeah, you just put flowers in them, but man, I would much rather like pop them with something and just see them break. I'm sorry, that's just that's a little insight into the the depravity of Chris's human mind. But it's, you just like you hit it with something good, and it just whoosh. the Messiah's strength is like a rod of iron, and the 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 amassed strength of all the nations is like a little flower pot. What happens when the two come into collision? It will be shattered into pieces. All right, we've got to move forward. Last one. We must sound the warning and invite people to submit to take refuge in the Messiah. We must sound the warning and invite people to submit and take refuge into the, in the Messiah. Um, so we just had this horrible hurricane. Ravaged Texas, uh, parts of Texas and, and Louisiana just smashed them. So hopefully you're praying for... You know, with all that's going on, one more thing to pray about. Yes, pray for people because, like, it's just devastating. Uh, I, I don't think I've heard this uh, about hurricanes in the past. It, it will have an unsurvivable storm surge. Get out. But with that, we have this really amazing storm warning system. We have known for over a week this was coming, and as it makes adjustments, they adjust the track more precise, and we've all heard about the cone of uncertainty, and we could track it for weeks. We could prepare for weeks. We could tell people to get out for weeks. We could evacuate them using all the personnel we needed for, for over a week, sounding the warning, get out, get out, get out. There's time. We had over a week for the government to move its resources so that as soon as it's gone, they can come in and put back together everything possible. And you know what some people still do? They throw a party, a hurricane party, in the face of an unsurvivable storm surge. Guys, there's a bigger storm coming into the world. And it is certain and it is inevitable. And you are God's early warning system. You are God's system that's pleading. It's an unsurvivable surge. Get out. It's an unsurvivable surge. Run to Jesus for refuge. It's an unsurvivable surge. Go believe in Him. Turn to Him. Put your life in Him. Run to Him for refuge. Flee. And some will. Some will. And many will throw a party. Because it will seem so idle to them. What they do is somewhat irrelevant. How they choose to respond. What is not irrelevant is will you be someone that's willing to sound the alarm? Will I be someone that's willing to warn them, to plead with them, to invite them to run for refuge? And so in this you see that Psalm 2, as terrifying as it is, as much wrath and fury as there is in it, is a psalm of gracious invitation to come to this king, this good king, and put your life in him. So... Nations, you can't rule us. God, I'll go ahead and set up my king anyways. King, I'm the adopted son of the father who's carrying out the father's purpose, loved by God, who now offers salvation to the ends of the earth. And the psalmist steps out of the voices of the psalm and says, here's what you need to hear. And he specifically, look at the words, he specifically speaks to the groups in verse 2. He says, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves together. The rulers take counsel together. So you have this brash, arrogant humanity that will throw God out of their lives. And then you have the psalmist saying, please, slow down a little bit. To their arrogance, to their brashness, to their pride, saying, please, just slow down a second. I wrote this psalm so that you would be, war- so that you would be wise. Please don't rush into this war. It's a fool's errand to Try to oppose the rule of God in your life. It will destroy you. Don't do it. And then he warns them, please be warned. Your plan is futile. It's going to fall apart. It's the worst thing you can possibly do. Don't do it. And then he invites them into the, to the service of Jesus. He invites them into the service of Jesus. And he says, serve the Lord with fear. The word for serve is to place yourself under as a vassal. And so when there was a powerful nation, other nations would stay nations, but they would pledge their allegiance and support and pay tribute to the stronger nation. Serve the Lord. Put yourself under the Lord in his rule. 
And do it with a reverence. Don't do it because you're afraid he will crush you. Do it because you are in awe of who he is. That you revere him. And then there's some emotions that you should have when you serve God. If God really is who he says he is. If he really is like the way he describes himself in this book. If he is really this stunning in his power. If he is really this stunning in his justice. If he is really this holy and this perfect and this great. You should feel a certain way about him. And if he is really this gracious. If he is really this compassionate. If he is really this good. Then you should feel a certain way. How? You should rejoice. Right? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I'll say rejoice. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Delight in the law of the Lord and meditate in his word day and night. Right? Rejoice. But if he really is who he says he is, there should be a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of, uh, uh, of trembling in your relationship to him. If he is really this striking and this stunning, rejoice in him. And if he's really this striking and this stunning, there should be a little trembling there. You know, there should be the kind of trembling where you stand on, the, uh, on a massive cliff and look over. That kind of trembling like, you know, I'm not going to fall, but I'm a little shaky right now. You're looking at the greatest, most magnificent and glorious being in all of the, above all of creation. You should probably tremble just a little. I know he loves me, but my knees knock a little. And then he says, kiss the sun. That is the word for pay, trib- uh, pay tribute to or properly homage the son. Lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. And so middle of your course, right? The way of the wicked that you can walk in and not be blessed, Psalm chapter 1, is the way that you're pursuing when you leave God. And when you pursue that way, you may find that right in the middle of that path, God's anger flares up. And you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Now this does not mean God has out of control anger and he throws temper tantrums in heaven and just wants to zap people every once in a while because it's all pent up in him. right? Because you read throughout the rest of the Psalms and the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and bounding in steadfast love. What he means here is once the anger of the Lord comes to fruition, it is inevitable. It's coming. Much like the day of the Lord we talked about some weeks ago. That once it starts, it is coming, and there will be no time to make it right anymore at that point. There will be no, no time, and then it ends with the line, Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Blessed is the one. And now, now that gives us the perspective on the whole rest of the psalm. It has been this pleading to come to the grace of God so you won't face the judgment of God. It's been this pleading that God is so good and so gracious to be in his kingdom is to be in the middle of goodness and flourishing. Like, go there. But be worried. Be warned because the other side is not pretty. The other side is is tragic. And so the psalm has been meant to be an invitation to grace, but also a warning to flee from the wrath. That is to come. Come put, take refuge in him. And you think about all the places we go for refuge. We go to our bank accounts for refuge. We go to a new relationship for refuge. We go to work for refuge. And we think, man, I'm going to find life there. I'm going to find satisfaction there. Things are going to be okay if I can just get to the next step there. If I can just get into a new relationship there. And it will not be a refuge for you. It will not make you fully satisfied. It will not put you under the active goodness of God. It won't be blessed. If you look to it for life. It won't be blessed if you look to the Son for life. If you look to God's divine King for life. If you look to the Messiah for refuge and life. That's where you'll find full satisfaction. Have you ever come to Him for refuge? Have you ever had been convicted of your sin? Have you ever been shown that you were eternally separated from him? It's not like we're okay with each other and we kind of got a deal we worked out. No, like there is eternally separated from him no matter how nice and good and sweet and kind you are, no matter how good a friend you are. You're eternally separated from him. Have you ever been convicted of that? Has God ever opened up your eyes to see Jesus? God in human flesh who lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, who died on a cross 
for your sins, who rose again, vindicating everything that he said and everything that he accomplished. And then you've turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus alone to save you. Has that ever happened in your life? Blessed are those who find refuge, all who take refuge in him. Have you taken refuge in him? And he's so gracious. Because your heart is bent toward rebellion just like mine. And here's what you do when you choose rebellion. You, you, you fall into sin or you take a path that leads to sin. And so what you do is, you know what, I'm going to just kind of silence the voice of God. I'm going to distance myself from church for a while. Because if I don't hear it, it'll be quiet. If I don't hear it, it won't plague my conscience. And then you're going to drift from your community. You don't quite show up to your discipleship groups, quite show up to your Sunday school classes, quite show up to your accountability times as, as often. You find a good reason not to. Because if I can just silence it, I can silence the plague of my conscience. And I don't read the word anymore. I don't, I don't pray near as much as I used to because if I can just silence it. But, but here's the thing. You have this gracious king that says, come and run to me for refuge. You don't have to drift from me. Just because you have sinned doesn't mean you have to run from me. Come to me. Confess your sins and I'm faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you. And so what the rebellion of our heart says is to multiply the problem by running away. And what God says is graciously come and run to me for refuge. And you'll find blessing as you reestablish refuge in me. Crawl back inside of my love for you. Back inside of my grace that's over you. A few practical things as we close out. Believe and repent. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus. But also believe and repent again. Where is the Holy Spirit alerting you to rebellion in your heart? Grumblings and strainings and strongholds and things that push against his rule in your life. Doors you leave closed because you don't want to deal with them. You want to keep that thing. And I just want to plead with you. More life will be found in opening it up and putting it underneath the lordship of Jesus versus closing it away and trying to protect it. You're blessed when you find refuge in him. Fullness is, is found when you open up the doors and run to him. Serve the Lord with humility. Serve the Lord not as a chore, not as a duty, but as the delight of your heart. But there's a very important posture. Arrogance hates to serve. Pride hates to be ruled. And humility says, I delight in the rule of God in my life because it frees me from being mastered by anything else, anything harsher, anything more destructive. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, it says, and he will exalt you in due time. So pursue a humility in your heart and a delight in your service. And then join Jesus' global saving mission. He is marching across every line that we want to draw between us and someone else. He is marching uh, with his plan of redemption against Every person that we say, no, that's too far, that's too different, that's too hard, and he's marching against it. But he's marching against it with people like you and me. Will we pray, God, give us boldness. Don't give us safety, give us boldness. Don't give us comfort, give us boldness. Will that be our prayer? Like the apostles? Give us boldness. Go. Make disciples. Make disciples on your campus. Uh, Go on trips go to your neighbors go to the nations if he calls you to the nations give sacrificially give your life and give your resources and plead with god for laborers for this harvest so that everyone may hear until everyone has heard we have a mission it's a mission that jesus is worthy of the worship of the nations the worships of the liberals and the conservatives the worships of every uh, ethnicity on the planet the worships of the Americans and the worship of the South Americans and the worship of the Middle Eastern Arabs, the worship of the Asian, the worship of the nations. And then jump into Psalm 60 with us. All right, so we have a great, good, and gracious king. Will you gladly align yourself under his lordship? Let's pray. Father, oh, rule over us, we pray. Let us feel what it is like to have rest for our souls again. Let us feel what it's like to have your yoke upon us because it's easy. To have your burden and not the burden of our sin, not the burden of the world, but the burden of Jesus that is light. Because we need rest for our souls, God. 
We need the blessing of those who find refuge in you, God. And yet we run from it. We're so foolish we run from it. God, pursue us again. Reclaim us again. Bring us close and keep us safe again. We pray that in Jesus' name. So with that, we're going to return to semi-normal invitations with this caveat. We won't get to talk face-to-face. If there's something you'd like for me to pray for you over, if you would just fill it out on the sheet of paper in your bulletin, uh, or if you would like to come forward and pray, um, I'll be praying over you without putting my hands on you, all this stupid COVID stuff that we have to think about that we didn't before, but returning to take those steps where you can respond to the Lord here. And as always, you can do it right in your seats where you are. But a few things is maybe you need to come to faith in Jesus. You need to submit yourself to his saving goodness. You need to turn and believe. Let us know about that. Do that. Maybe you see some areas of rebellion in your own heart and life, and God, I want those out, and they just won't go out. And they've been there so long, you've just lost hope that they could, and you just want to come and ask again, God, rule over that specific area too. Or maybe you need refuge and you need refreshing, and you need to come just humble yourself and ask for it again. If you need to do that here, please do. If you need to do that where you are, please do. But let's stand and let's sing together uh, as we close out.